0: also doing in the part of the world where we're working I was here just last summer so if you're like well I think I've seen that one person before it's because you have and the Lord has led us uh, after many years in Africa to coming back a little bit more often our kids as you can see from the picture are starting to get older and they're all starting to transition so we're usually in Africa now for 10 months we come home for June and July and we're helping um, our kids transition as they graduate from high school or college and move on to the next step, and uh, so we have sort of a new rhythm, and that is why you've seen us uh, a little bit more often. Uh, We moved to Burkina Faso in 1997, and the main ministry that I was a part of was training African missionaries, realizing that missions is a call For all of God's children to embrace and to engage and realizing that our arrival in Africa was sort of during a time when God's spirit was stirring in people's hearts and lives. And and Africans were starting to say, hey, people brought us the good news and we have grown as disciples. Maybe the Lord can use us to take the good news to other people. And so it came sort of at the right time and the Lord uh, allowed us to start a missionary training school and African missionaries came from many different places. You can see the red dots on the map there of Africa show the places where students started to come for missionary training and now have gone back to their countries and are working cross-culturally bringing the good news to other parts of the world. And to be honest, that was very exciting to be a part of. Um, we will only be working in Africa for a short amount of time. What can we do to multiply impact? What can we do to uh, empower and encourage other people to become engaged in the harvest? And I, I believe with all my heart, the most, one of the most satisfying things we can do is discover the gifts that we have and allow God to use those gifts in a part of the world where he is least known. And Africa has... Many challenges, there's many joys to be able to work in Africa. There's many good things and exciting things happening there. But at the same time, there's a lot of challenges. And one of those challenges is the ethnic complexity that is on the African continent. And many countries will have 40 or 50 or 60 ethnic groups. Each one has their own language. Each one has their own culture. And each one of those ethnic groups deserves to hear the good news in a language that they can understand so that they can also give their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ. And so being involved in a ministry that's training and empowering African missionaries to go, often they can go to places that are difficult for us, and they can have a much bigger impact because of who they are and the cultures and the languages that they already know. So for about 15 years I directed this school and we had small groups of students that were there for intensive times and it was really an exciting time. Probably I'll look back uh, for most of my life and look back at those years as being some of the most satisfying years in ministry because it was high, high sort of discipleship, high uh, mentoring, spending time learning from people how does, it, how does it look when the good news is planted in your part of Africa? What are the challenges and the obstacles that you face in your part of Africa? What are some of the things you have learned working in your part of Africa that can be a blessing to your brothers and sisters working uh, in other parts of the world? It also led us to a lot of field work. We went to all sorts of places, dangerous places sometimes, places dominated by Islam, trying to understand how Muslims think, Trying to understand what are the obstacles in in Africa, in places where Islam dominates that keep people from understanding or receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. How can we love people that are very different? I just recently heard Brother Andrew. Many of you have heard of Brother Andrew. For many years, he smuggled Bibles into Eastern Europe, into communist sort of dominated countries. Recently, he sort of shifted his focus and he's much more engaged working with Arab peoples or Muslim peoples. He's very engaged in the Middle East. And he says one of the the things that he prays for, one of the things he wants with all his heart is to see Western Christians change their perspective on Islam or change the perspective, the way they see Muslim people. And he says, think of this. Think of an acrostic, Islam, and think of it this way. I sincerely love all Muslims. I sincerely love all Muslims. Wouldn't it be amazing if Christians in our country and in other parts of the world where Christ is known had that perspective on Muslim people, people that are valuable to God, people made in the image of God, people for whom God died. And the church of Jesus Christ, uh, of any body on earth, should be able to say, I sincerely love all Muslims. Even if In my culture or in my country, we see them very differently. Uh, Christians should have. Uh, I sincerely love all Muslims' perspective, and I think that's important. Now, this is a famous city in Mali. I might have shown this picture to you before. It's a city dedicated to Islam, and it's called Jene. It's a few miles away from Timbuktu. There are 14,000 people there, and they have 44 Islamic schools. 44 Islamic schools. Yes, Timbuktu is a real place. Some of you are laughing. You think I'm making it up. It's a real place. And uh, this is a city we went to. I took my students there every year for 12 years running. And we would spend a week there. And we would go, uh, oh, I don't have the rest of the pictures of that. But we would go and we became friends with Islamic teachers. We'd sit in the Quranic schools. We'd observe how little Muslim boys and girls learn the Quran in Muslim school. And then at the end of the day, um, the Muslim teachers would allow us to interview them. How do you understand God? What does the Quran say about Jesus Christ? Why do you believe in Islam? What does Islam mean to you? And the point there was anyone who's being trained to be a missionary in Africa who will be working with Muslim peoples needs to begin to understand Islam from an insider's point of view. Any of us could teach Islam and say, well, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to poke holes in this thing. I'm going to show you all the inconsistencies, all the problems, set up a straw man, blow it down, and make them look very foolish. But it's altogether different to hear it from someone who really believes it and who has really studied it. And it enlarges your horizon. It changes your perspective and helps you begin to see things the way they do. So that was a very important part of... Uh, our training. Now, one of the very sad things, if you've been following uh, the news about West Africa, is that terrorism has really taken over. And much of our part of West Africa has become very difficult, if not impossible, for Westerners to go there. And this town is now completely uh, off limits and not a place that we can go to anymore. In January 15 of 2016, the problems really came to the fore, and several large events uh, happened, Um, and I don't know if you followed the news or how much they're in the news, but terrorists basically started taking over Burkina Faso. The north is completely off-limits, the east is completely off-limits, and several large terrorist events have happened in uh, Ouagadougou, where hotels were blown up. People went in with machine guns into restaurants and killed many people. This is a man named Mike Rittering, who's a Christian missionary in Burkina, who was killed in one of those terrorist attacks. His wife is still working there. And this is Dr. Ken Elliott, a missionary doctor from Australia who worked uh, in Burkina Faso ever since 1972. And he was kidnapped on... January 15, 2016, and is being held in Mali by one of these terrorist organizations. If you receive our newsletter, monthly we we send a newsletter called Gray Matters, and in our prayer requests, every month I mention, please pray for Ken Elliott. Please pray for Ken Elliott. He's a family friend, someone that we love dearly, someone who's being held captive by the terrorists in Burkina. Now, just this year, in April... After 22 years of working in Burkina Faso, Karen and I sensed that the Lord was moving us to a new place. And we moved to the country called Niger, which is just next door to Burkina. We just moved. We found a house. We moved into the house. Our children had been going to school there for several years, so we had been there before. We knew our way around a little bit. And then we came home. We just had a son who graduated high school. And we brought him home, we're going to leave him in college and then go back. Karen, in fact, leaves next week. So we're coming to report back to you, uh, a church that supports us, letting you know sort of what we've been doing in Burkina for the last 22 years, but then also letting you know we've made a move, we're living in the neighboring country called Niger that's almost completely uh, Muslim. You can see the countries that border Burkina, uh, Niger, Algeria, Libya, Chad. Mali, and the northern part of Nigeria, which is completely Muslim, so it's a very Muslim part of the world. And you see little Burkina Faso there, uh, sort of to the southwest. This is a very troubling map. It's a map that the French embassy put out not long ago for French citizens knowing, to, to let them know where they are no longer safe to travel. And the red parts of the map you see Somalia is a completely difficult place. But also look in West Africa. I don't know if this works. Right there, that's Burkina. And that whole eastern part is being taken over by, uh, by extremists. There is Niger where we are, Niamey. I don't know how much longer it will be safe, but that is where the Lord has led us and where we are working now. Once we got into Niger and settled down, we realized that Islam has a much stronger hold on the people of Niger than ever it did in Burkina. Burkina does have a growing church, Uh, close to 10%. It's about 8% of the people in Burkina Faso are evangelical Christians. But it's less than a third of 1% in the country of Niger. Maybe the Lord allowed us to have 22 years in Burkina, to prepare us for a, a higher-level sort of ministry situation in Niger. If there is a country in West Africa that needs local believers who are thinking like missionaries, going cross-culturally, loving sincerely all Muslim people, it's probably the very small church in Niger. So it could well be that God and his sovereignty, God as he was working in our life, God as he was working in that part of the world, had us move for reasons we didn't completely understand, but he's plunked us down, we believe, in a part of Africa that we feel he's probably equipped us fairly well because of our past experience to somehow, by God's grace, contribute in a small way to what he's doing. These are just some pictures of people you would see uh, every day uh, in Niger. I'm going to be working at a Bible school training people for ministry. And Karen's going to be working with missionary kids at Sahel Academy. Sahel Academy has about 150 students. Many of the kids are children of missionary parents who work in West Africa. A lot of them are in Niger. And our two oldest sons both graduated from there, and they loved it. They had a lot of spiritual input from other adults who had gone to work in that part of the world, And they both loved it. And now our daughters are there as well. Karen loves working with kids. She went to Gordon College and has a degree in education. And she's found a place, a part of the world, that needs teachers where she can fit in and speak into the lives of children there. All right. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 87. The first half of my time was a mission report. And now we're going to move into the sermon. If you have your Bibles... Please find Psalm 87. Psalm 87. Let me read that for you. On the holy mountain stands the city founded by the Lord. He loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other city in Israel. O city of God, what glorious things are said of you. I will count Egypt and Babylon among those who know me, also Philistia and Tyre, and even distant Ethiopia. They have all become citizens of Jerusalem. Regarding Jerusalem, it will be said, everyone enjoys the rights of citizenship there. And the Most High will personally bless this city. When the Lord registers the nations, he will say, they have all become citizens of Jerusalem. The people will play flutes and sing. The source of my life springs from Jerusalem." This is an amazing psalm. And if you and I had been Jewish people living about a thousand years before Jesus, we would have been shocked at this psalm, at what this psalm says. Now, the first part of the psalm would not surprise us at all. The first side, the first couple verses of the psalm would fortify what we believe so strongly about our identity with God. The first part of the psalm would have been like music to our ears. It would have made us feel glad. It would have made us feel proud to be part of the people of God. The first part of the psalm talks about how much God loves, how much God blesses our city, the city of Jerusalem, the the center of our country, the center of our hopes and our dreams. Do you remember when Nehemiah, who was in captivity in Babylon, do you remember when he heard that the city had been destroyed and the walls had broken down? What was his reaction? Who remembers? Who, re- who remembers what Nehemiah did? Yes. there build walls: Yeah. Nehemiah was burdened with the destruction of the walls of the city. And he got permission to go and rebuild the walls. When he first hears what the situation of the city was like, he wept for several days. He didn't go right up to the king the first day and say, Please give me permission to go back and build up the city of Jerusalem, the walls have fallen down. He wept because Jerusalem had significance for the people of God. It was the city of David, it was where Solomon built that amazing temple. It was the center of their life. It was where they had post, you know, held up their, their hopes and dreams for their future. It was the glorious city that unified and surrounded their, their country. And so when God in this psalm refers to how strongly he loves Jerusalem, how much he loves the people of God, the blessing he wants to pour out on the people of God, The people of God, the Jewish people, would have been very proud. This would have underlined or put in bold what they already fiercely believed in. God is our God and we are his people. He called us. He set us apart. He loved us. He called us out of Egypt, that great story of redemption. He preserved us for 40 years in the wilderness. He fed us miraculously. He gave us the promised land. All of that shows God's action on our behalf. He fought our battles for us. When we entered the promised land and came up to the city of Jericho with its big walls, God gave us the victory. We simply marched around the walls referring to the greatness of our God and praising him. And God brought those walls down because God is our God. And so the beginning of this psalm reinforces the love that God has for his people And Jewish people, in reading this beginning psalm, would have said, yes, that makes sense. He's our God, and we are his people. But as the psalm continues, it becomes a bit troubling. Did you see? Did you see that? He says some strange things. Because God in this psalm, after saying how much he loves his people and how much he wants to bless his people, he says, I will count people from Egypt, big enemy of the people of God. Babylon, probably a bigger enemy of the people of God. Philistia? I mean, all those stories of David... When, 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 when they were trying to set up the kings, who was always the thorn in the side of the Jewish people? It was the Philistines. When David had to fight the, the giant Goliath, it was the Philistine army. All throughout the kings, the, the history of the period of the kings, the Philistines were a thorn in the side of Israel. They were constantly attacking. Their, their, their influence, their attack, their hatred for the people of God spanned a longer time than ever did the Babylonians who took them into captivity. And so the beginning of the psalms sounds so wonderful for God's people. God loves us. We are God's people. He's blessing us. He's said it black and white in one of the psalms that will be forever remembered because they're part of the, the canon of scripture that God loves the Jewish people and he's going to bless our city. And then as you go on, he, God says, he reveals his greater plan and says, you know what? I love Jerusalem and the people of God that I love. Guess what? There's a bigger plan here than what you Jewish people understand. Because I am going to change the birth certificates of some of your biggest enemies, the people that you don't like. And I'm going to say that one there. He, You know, he's... Jewish. I mean, he's, he's Egyptian. But he was born in Jerusalem. He is part of that great city whose people I love and bless. And those Philistines over there, I have some people there, too, that I'm going to call by my name. They're going to hear the good news, and they're going to respond. They're going to repent. They're going to believe, and they're going to obey. And they too will be considered part of my people, the people that I love. And so, God goes through this list of other countries. He refers to Tyre and Sidon, which are in Lebanon today. And says, there are people there that will belong to me. And I will change their birth certificate. I will say, there's someone there in Egypt who's born in Jerusalem. And there's someone there among the Philistines. You're deadly enemies. I'm going to change their birth certificate. I own that one. That one belongs to me. There's someone there that belongs To the people of God. This second part of the psalm is a bit shocking. The second part of the psalm, if you were a faithful Jewish person, doesn't sound very well. God, something's wrong. I thought we were your people. And God, through this psalm, that the Jewish people sang one of the hymns that they would sing were constantly, whether they were consciously aware of it or not, they were singing of this greater plan of God to include people from all these other ethnic groups into his larger family, the people of God. Because ultimately, God's plan was not to just have a people of God who are defined by ethnicity, but a people of God who are defined by faith. A people of God who understand the greatness of God. And who appreciate that greatness of God. And who understand and who respond and who obey to that great God. And he was never going to be held captive as the God of the Jewish people alone. And of course this goes back to the very document, the very beginning of the Jewish people. Back in the book of Genesis when God starts his great redemption plan. And he calls Abraham out of where Iraq is, oddly enough, today in that part of the world. God calls Abraham out and says, I'm going to bless you. That sounds a lot like the beginning of Psalm 87. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a big family. Abraham's like, I don't even have one kid yet. I'm 100, and my wife's really old. We have no children. You're going to give us a huge family? It's going to take a lot of faith, Abraham. I want you to believe I'm making you a promise. I'm inviting you to a life of adventure. But you need to have faith. It's never going to work. The, start, the, the starting point is faith. I'm going to tell you something that's, that's too hard for you to believe. I'm going to ask you to obey me in some very difficult situations. And it all starts with you responding to my invitation with faith. And, of course, Abraham does respond in faith. And the New Testament says he becomes the father of all of those who express that kind of Adventure-taking faith. Risk-taking faith. Abraham becomes the father. He's the first one. Because God promised to bless him and be his God and lead him on a life of adventure away from his family and friends, away from his country, away from what he knew to a place where God would show him and God would bless him. And that's, of course, the beginning of the Jewish people. But in that covenant that God makes with Abraham, there's already a hint of the bigger story. There's already the seeds that have been planted that God's people will eventually include people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. He's gonna start with Abraham and his family, but the ultimate idea is to go beyond that. Because the second part of the covenant is, I'm gonna bless you, Abraham. I'm gonna give you this amazing family. But your family is going to become a blessing to all the families on earth. That's the ultimate plan. That's where this is headed. It starts with a walk of faith. You walk with the Lord and you're blessed with God. You respond to him in faith when he reveals himself to you. And as you walk with him and continue to grow and mature and take risks that show that your faith is real and you are obeying, your life becomes a source of blessing For others, That was true in the life of Abraham, and it was true in the life of Joseph. It was true in the life of Daniel, people that God used in very difficult situations. They heard God, they believed, they responded in faith, they obeyed, and they became a blessing to many other people. Now, of course, ultimately, the second part of the covenant is going to be fulfilled through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus comes, he doesn't only come for the Jewish people, he comes for everyone. Isaiah 49 6, when Isaiah is referring to the Jesus who will come, the Messiah who will come, he says this He says, It is too small a thing for you to redeem only those from the house of Judah. I will make you a blessing for all nations. That's God. Speaking through Isaiah before Jesus is ever, even born. Years before. Jesus' ministry will be a blessing for all the families on earth. Now what do you see when you see this picture? What do you see? Remember that promise God made to Abraham? You're going to have a lot of children. I'm going to make a big nation through you. It's hard to believe. I'm really old. My wife's really old. This doesn't happen this way Normally. What were some of the signs that God gave to Abraham to encourage him when his faith was low? What, did he, what does this remind you of? What do you see up there? The stars. the stars. What did he say to Abraham? What did he say? Go out and look at the stars. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He gave him a concrete image that he could hold on to. And then he told, he told Abraham, look at the sand on the seashore. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand at the seashore. That's a lot of people for an old couple to dream about. And, of course, the people who belong to the people of God are not just Jewish people, right? It's this huge explosion of faith where people are coming to faith in Christ all over the world. And we see that God's promise is true, that God gave Abraham and Sarah a very large family, the Jewish people is a, an amazing nation in and of itself, but the, the real truth of this promise extends beyond that to an even greater number of people. Now many times we see pictures of hungry people or we hear about people that don't have God's word, or we hear about unreached people groups and we're tempted to think that mission starts there they need the Lord, they need help, they need teaching, they need discipleship. We have something they don't have. And that's what starts mission. But really, mission starts before that. Mission starts with God, who loves and who takes initiative. And in Psalm 87 that we just read, God is taking the initiative to bless his people, and God is taking the initiative To call out people from other nations to include them into his family. And when he says, I will change your birth certificates, they will be mine. That in Psalm 87 shows God taking initiative to redeem lost people. Mission starts with God. Mission starts with God loving, God pursuing, God redeeming people who need him. Yeah, there are hungry people. Yeah, there are people that need God's word in their language. Yes, there are people that deserve and need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But mission doesn't start with human need. Mission starts with the greatness of God and God's plan for those people in need. And all throughout scripture, we have God taking initiative. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and were separated from God, God took initiative. God went after them. God found them. God ministered to them. God gave a covering for them. God protected them. God spoke into their lost situation. God went and found Adam and Eve. God has a risk-taking love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Do you remember the three parables that Jesus gives us in Luke 15? There's a parable about the lost sheep. The shepherd has 99 other sheep, but he cares about the one that's lost. And the shepherd, the good shepherd, goes to find the one lost sheep. And then there's the story about the coin. The woman has a coin that's lost. And she sweeps and she cleans and she's never going to be able to sleep at night until she finds that lost coin. And then he tells a story about the lost son. That's really the story about two lost sons. Because there's the younger son who's outwardly disobedient and runs away and lives a wild life and wastes a lot of money. And then there's the older son, the obedient son who's sort of self-righteous and looks down at other people. Both of those sons need a change of heart. Both of those sons need to encounter the transforming love of Jesus Christ. They're both lost for different reasons and in different ways. But Jesus tells these three stories back to back. And the one common feature of those three stories is that God is like the woman looking for the coin. God is like that good shepherd who goes out to seek for the lost sheep. God is like the father who wants desperately to have a love-filled relationship with his wandering away son and with his self-righteous son. God is the constant in each of those stories because God is love. And God takes initiative to restore broken human relationships. Mission starts with God. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That shows the the risk-taking initiative, love that Jesus had when he came on earth. Now, this is sort of a haunting verse, isn't it, at the end of the book of John. John 20, verse 21. As the Father sent me... In this love-filled, risk-taking initiative to find lost people. As my Father sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I am sending you. And we realize that this sending love, this initiative-taking, uh, going out to, to live and to witness to lost people was, was part of what, the reason why God sent Jesus. And Jesus, as he's leaving, looks at his disciples and says, in the same way, I'm sending you to love lost people, to be risk taker, initiative people that go out and find lost people. So the question isn't with, if. The question is not, if God sends me, will I go? The question really is where? If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the question is not, if God will send me as a missionary someplace, will I go? The question is, where has God already sent me? We know he sent me wherever I am in the same way that God sent the Son. So many of you live maybe in this area, in the Worcester area, or in the Hanover area, because we have a small contingency that's come up from the South Shore today. If you are living in Hanover, if you are living in Sterling, if you are living in Worcester, if you are living in in any town in Massachusetts, you have been sent there. It's not a question of if. The question is, where are you? You have been called to be a witness for Christ there where you are sent. Because as the Father sent the Son, so the Son is sending you. Your mission field is where God put you. And so if we have 300 people here today or 200 people We have 200 missionaries in the Worcester area, in the Sterling area, in the Hudson area. This is great. We can be finding lots of lost sheep and lost coins and lost sons. Because as the Father sent Jesus, so he has sent us. Hudson Taylor used to say, if your Christian faith does not have an element of risk to it. You don't really need much faith. If in your walk with the Lord, you're not engaged in any sort of risk-taking adventure with God, if it's just ho-hum, regular, I'm a Christian today, thank you, Lord, if there's no reaching out in risk-taking love, then there's not really faith required. You're just sort of living. That was Hudson Taylor's sort of view on this. Remember this story at the end of David's life. I think it's 2 Samuel chapter 23. We have this amazing story. It's kind of a small story. It's sort of an obscure story. The the title in my Bible says, these are the last words of King David. And, and they're telling you sort of his last words. And then they tell you this little story. It's like the author somehow places it at the very end of David's life. I don't know if it's for effect. I don't know if he forgot to put it where he wanted to put it. But it's there. 2 Samuel verse 20, chapter 23. And it tells the story when David and his armies are surrounded by the Philistines. They're tired. They're being beaten up really badly. They're separated from their family. And they're hunkered down. And David is tired and he's weary from battle. And he sort of says under his breath to some of the men that were closest to him, he says, Oh, I wish I had a drink of water from that well in Bethlehem. Some of the men heard it. They were close enough to hear David sigh. And they scamper off. And now they do. The text makes it clear that what they do is actually an act of great risk. Uh, it's great heroism. Because they've got to fight through the Philistine line, travel back to Bethlehem, get some water from the well, and then they've got to come back and they've got to fight through the Philistine army again and find David and give him water without spilling any of it. You know, those, those relay games you play and take water in a spoon. All right. Take water in a spoon with people shooting at you, and it's a lot harder. Well, three of the men who were close to David heard his sort of dying sigh, and they went. They were devoted to David. Because they had a risk-taking love for David, they were willing to do something that was really risky. They went, and they got some water. And they came back and they fought through the Philistine line. And they got to David and they said, David, here it is. What? Did David really believe when he sighed that under his breath that people would take it seriously and and run off at great cost to bring him this water? And they said, David, we heard you sigh under your breath that you would love right now. You're so tired and thirsty from battle. You'd love a drink of water from your family well in Bethlehem. So here it is. And with trembling hands, I'm imagining, David reaches up and takes this water from his loyal friends. And his heart is filled with awe at this great risk-taking venture they had set off on. And the Bible doesn't give us all the details. But David looks at that water and senses that he is not worthy of that Great a devotion. And he pours the water out as an offering to God. As though he were saying only God is worthy of such risk-taking, sacrificial adventures and devotion. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love you've bestowed upon us. We thank you for how you've saved us. We thank you for how you equip us. And we thank you for how you invite us to join you on this great adventure of sharing the good news with people who are lost. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to stay close enough to you that we can hear your wishes. And I pray that you would give us the devotion we need To take those risks for you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, My name is Ken Hall. I am the pastor of students.